You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks, Melissa. See you soon. And hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead of us today. It's crisis in America with protests rocking the nation from coast to coast just as cities were starting to reopen. We're going to look at the economic impact and corporate America's response as CEOs line up to call for change. Plus, markets are trying to climb this wall of worry as a number of big market moving events converge here. We're going to look at where investors should focus their attention. And Eli Lilly starts testing a groundbreaking COVID treatment while America marks a historic moment in space. It's all ahead of us today. But we do begin with today's markets, and Dom Chu is here with those numbers. All right, so, Kelly, we are climbing that wall of worry, and it's incrementally to the upside for right now. It's not a massive gain one way or the other. However, the Dow Industrials are up by about one quarter of 1%. You can see the S&P about a third of 1%, and the Nasdaq Composite up a little over half of 1%. So green across the screen, we'll see if that can stick into the afternoon. Now, take a look at one of the themes that we're seeing develop over the course of the year so far. Severe underperformance at one point of the emerging markets, and it's starting to exacerbate a little bit more here against the S&P 500. We can see the U.S. is still and remains one of the safe haven trades for equities in the world. We'll see if that sticks. And then check out this. This is the reflation trade, the reopening trade. Look at these stocks. Travel ones, Southwest Air up 6%, Norwegian Cruise Lines up 9 even General Motors when it comes to auto spending up 5% right now. So we'll see if these particular themes for the reopening of the economy, Kelly, stick around for the longer term. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thanks very much. And we begin a new week having to come to grips with searing images of violence and destruction across the nation. What began with protests over the death of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer have turned into a firestorm over long-simmering issues of racism and economic inequality. While politicians point fingers over who's to blame, a number of the nation's top business leaders are looking for solutions that will do more than pay lip service to this crisis. Here's what John Bryant, chairman and CEO of Operation Hope, had to say. Nobody changes in good times. Why would you? We only change in bad times. Well, these are some bad times. These are some challenging times. So it's time for some radical transformational change. So let's talk about solutions and the path forward for this crisis in America. Joining me now is Don Peebles. He's the chairman and CEO of the Peebles Corporation. Don, it's good to see you again, albeit under difficult circumstances. So as you listen to what everybody has said on this network and elsewhere today, where do you kind of fall in terms of what you think the path forward here is? Well, I think the number one path forward, I think if you think about what Black Lives Matter means, is it's about life in general and the pursuit of happiness and opportunity. And African-Americans are frustrated and have been for quite some time about the lack of economic opportunity. If you take a look at statistics, for example, that the average black household net worth in the United States is $17,000 compared to 171000 for whites. Or an extreme example is Boston, Massachusetts, where the average black household net worth is $8 compared to the average household net worth for whites of almost $250,000. So it's an economic challenge, and the solution ultimately will uh, run through providing fair and equal access to economic opportunity. What does that economic opportunity look like for you? You know, I was struck, uh, I know so many people were listening to Ken Frazier of Merck's uh, speaking this morning, and he said, you know, frankly, the only way he made it out of inner city, I think Philadelphia it was, was because he happened to be one of the kids who got to go on a bus 90 minutes away to a better school. So what does that opportunity and that access look like for you in terms of helping people to a better path? 
Well, I think long term and generationally, of course, uh, the pathway to opportunity in this country is generally run through access to fair education and good quality public education. And African-Americans are disproportionately affected by poor educational systems. But I think the issue is more immediate uh, for those people who are in the work world now, and that is access to economic opportunity through entrepreneurship, access to capital. Just to give you an alarming statistic, so there's about $73 trillion in the United States invested with asset managers. Less than 1% of them are minorities and women. So the deployment of capital from investors into businesses and startup businesses and the like um, does not go to African Americans. And so most African-Americans want a better life. In fact, all African-Americans want a better life, and they know that that pathway to a better life is through economic opportunity. And so access to capital to start the dreams of a small business, to build a business of scale, has got to start with allocation of capital. And the only private sector firm that I can think of in terms of a Fortune 500 company is J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, Jamie Dimon has led on this effort in terms of advancing black pathways and providing access to opportunity um, for African-Americans. And he just created and hired a new head of global diversity, an African-American young man named Brian Lamb. So he's serious about that. And I think private, the private sector has to step up here and acknowledge that there's systemic discrimination in this country when it comes to the deployment of capital and access to economic opportunity. And no one's going to be at a start of business. No one's going to develop office buildings or apartments or the like without fair access to capital. And that has eluded African-Americans. And that is a part of the frustration going on now. But that's where the solution is. And that's a tangible and a more immediate step if businesses and the government and unions, for example, could take those affirmative steps. I mean, you look at New York City, the um, health care workers union, 1199, which is comprised primarily of minorities in their membership. They have almost 200 asset management firms, and there's not one of them that's an African-American-owned firm. That's just a travesty and an unacceptable one, and that's why you're seeing this frustration that's yeah. been built up over time. And I'm sure you'd say, too, it's not just about getting the dollars to the existing ones. It's about creating more of those African-American asset managers or, you know, people with the capital across all different kinds of industries. And I think that's why there's it's not an either or. It's probably a both and in terms of do you start with the bottom up and do you go back to, like we were saying a moment ago, the school system and kind of exposing people to these kinds of paths earlier, making them feel like they're really tangible. You know, a friend of mine works with a summer program that's aimed at helping place kids from, you know, kind of inner city. Manhattan uh, with scholarship programs and different things that guarantees them entrance into college for a lot of first generation people who have never, you know, had a family or really a dream of going to college before. So is it bottoms up? Um, is it top down, like you say, and making sure that kind of that capital allocation process is fair? Um, I'm, I'm sure you'd say it's a little bit of both. But what else would you like to see in terms of, you know, either corporate leaders, maybe political leaders? I mean, obviously, some of this could be done by fiat to say, you know, people kind of have to make sure that they're giving a certain amount of their funds uh, to this demographic? Well, I think, first of all, I think, um, you know, opportunity starts at home. We as African-American entrepreneurs need to invest in our communities and invest in our people. Um, we need to lead by example and engage our communities. Um, our company has been doing that for you know, three decades. We have a philosophy of affirmative development where every project that we develop, the economic benefits ought to be reflective of the demographics of the population. 
Also, the governments have got to do better. The pension systems around the United States are very powerful, and they invest trillions of dollars into asset management firms and into private equity. And yet they have no mandate, no goals, no objectives for economic inclusion for African Americans. We have got to do much better in public education. And there are places that have done better. Success Academy in New York, um, a charter school network, has done transformative work. I mean, Henry Kravitz of KKR um, has done significant work in terms of diversifying um, the investment banking employees. And if you look at KKR, for example, that firm is more reflective of the demographics of this country. I think that we have to say that a system, if we look at the top, for example, the 400, um, in theory, that 400 of the richest people in this country, well, if, African, if it's a fair system, then 12% of them should be African-American, not less than 1%. That is the actual fact of today. I think also that we have to look at employing people in positions of opportunity and investing in, in, in our talent to give young African-Americans opportunities to develop a skill set and advance their careers. And also we got to knock down this, this unfair double standard that African-American entrepreneurs, African-American professionals, and African-American uh, business leaders have to bat a thousand. You got to be perfect, as opposed to our counterparts who can bat 200, 250, and and become you know Hall of Famers. Mm-hmm. And I think this double standard and combine that with a low expectation that our country has for most of us, um, that creates an environment where it's only it's only the outliers that actually can achieve in that. And we cannot have a system that says success is based upon an outlying event. It has to be a successful outcome based on effort and talent. And as we all know, talent is distributed equally. Mm -hmm. It's the economic opportunity that is distributed very discriminatorily. Don, final question. You brought up a baseball analogy, so I'll give you another one. Where do you think we are in terms of innings uh, with what started over the weekend with these protests? Oh, I think that the I think we're probably in the second to third inning. Think about it as a pressure cooker. Um, over the years, these pressure, uh, you know, and, and, and over these events of police brutality, which are indicative of the of the systemic oppression of African Americans, every now and then these protests happen, and some pressure comes out. I think, combined with the pandemic and the disproportionate economic impact um, this has had on communities of color, especially black people, um, along with this economic disparity, I think people have had enough. And I think white America, young white America, this new generation, they see an unfair system, too. And they see what's happening to black people, but they also see what's happening to them. So I think we're early in this. Mm-hmm. But this is not a political issue only. And by the way, I'm very disappointed that I have not seen the national political leadership of African-Americans step up and lead on this issue. Um, they've been missing in action. And it's been a big disappointment to me. But this is a, an issue that the business community has to step up. Otherwise, our model of capitalism will not survive. This is an unfair system and it will not survive. And so we as business leaders, black, white and everything in between, we have to work together to create a much more fairer system that people can actually believe that they stand a chance in. And right now, people are on the street because they feel hopeless and frustrated. And so we as entrepreneurs need to lead and business leaders need to lead and say, no, this is a place of great opportunity and we're welcoming you into this environment of opportunity. Until that happens, we're going to struggle and this is going to be a long game. 
Very well said. Uh, Don, thanks so much. Really enlightening, and we appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Don Peebles is chairman and CEO of the Peebles Corporation. Well, state budgets are already stretched to the limit by this pandemic and now having to tackle the trauma of these ongoing riots and unrest. Elon Moy is here with the very latest. Elon. Well, Kelly, judging by the acrimonious conversation between President Trump and the nation's governors earlier today, the path to compromise seems very narrow indeed. The president appears to be placing the blame for the unrest on local leaders, and that suggests that the cost of responding to these protests will fall on their shoulders as well. But remember, states are already facing a $765 billion budget shortfall over the next three years due to the coronavirus. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had already conceded that another round of aid for state and local governments would likely be needed. Before the protests began, he had expected that those negotiations would start toward the back half of this month. The questions were around how much money and what strings might be attached. But now the politics of Republicans bailing out blue states and Democratic uh, Democratic cities are much more fraught than they were before. Kelly, I will also point out that in Louisville, Kentucky, McConnell's home state, the mayor there is looking for a $1.5 million program to try to connect with disengaged youth. It's going to be really hard for the city to do that when it's drowning in red ink. Back over to you. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely true. We'll watch and see what happens. Elon, thanks very much. Elon Moy with the rundown there. Meantime, dozens of companies have weighed in on the protest, but many are getting pushback for not doing enough. We're going to talk about what brands could do better. Plus, the markets are coming off a strong month with the S&P having its best May since 2009. What will June hold as the wall of worry grows? We're back after this quick break. This is... The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. The relationship between the U.S. and China getting more complicated by the day, with China now using civil unrest in the U.S. as a form of propaganda to justify its own actions in Hong Kong. Eunice Yun is live in Beijing with the very latest. Hi, Eunice. Hi, Kelly. Well, the Chinese state media are having a field day uh, when it comes to the uh, civil unrest in the United States, uh, really describing it as a mirror of the chaotic values of America and also accusing the U.S. of double standards when it comes to protesters. And the logic being that Washington is uh, perfectly okay getting tough on its own protesters, but then is highly critical of China when Beijing decides to crack down on protesters in Hong Kong. So today, uh, one of the most mocked and popular phrases on state media as well as social media is beautiful sight. And this is after the Global Times um, editor, uh, Hu Xijin, had rhetorically asked uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, whether or not she would use that phrase to describe the U.S. protests in a similar manner that she did about the ones in Hong Kong. Uh, Also, officially, uh, the foreign ministry spokesperson, uh, when challenged by the State Department, on Twitter about Beijing's new national security laws for Hong Kong just posted one line. I can't breathe. So uh, from the Chinese perspective, uh, these new national security laws are essential, Kelly, uh, for Beijing to be able to have um, economic stability. 
in Hong Kong. Eunice, is there any evidence that the Chinese would uh, directly try to stir the pot? I know that came up over the weekend as it regards to the Russians, and it goes back to some of the behavior in the 2016 election. But is any evidence or, or sense that that would be a, a priority or something the Chinese would want to do? There isn't any evidence of that. There's been some actually there's been some chatter about it on social media that uh, maybe uh, the Hong Kong protesters and the U.S. protesters are in some way colluding or learning from each other. But there's nothing substantive about uh, China in any way trying to foment unrest in the United States. Yep. Just like you said, uh, using it to kind of push forward its own message. Eunice, we appreciate the updates as always. Eunice Yoon live in Beijing for us tonight. While the markets are adding civil unrest to the wall of worry, which already includes a showdown with China and the coronavirus pandemic, our investors walking into a trap here. Joining me are Neil Hennessy, the chief investment officer of Hennessy Funds, and Chris Davis, chairman and portfolio manager of Davis Advisors. It's great to have you both here. Neil, I'll just start with you. I know you've been pretty upbeat on the markets, and, and the last time we checked in with you was much closer to the lows, and you said, you know, we're going to come out of this, and we have. What happened? now? Well, Kelly, I think you got to just step back for a second. Just look at the first five months of this year. We started off with the uh, impeachment, then we had the the, uh, trade wars with China, then we had Iran, we had Korea, then we had uh, Australian fires, and then we got the corona uh, virus coming, then all of a sudden the Dow drops 38% in a heartbeat, oil goes below zero. Next thing you know is they've canceled every sporting event, every event out there. Now we got from uh, really low unemployment to 40 million people out of, out of uh, jobs and then the riots so we can look forward to the November elections. But when you put all this together, business has done very, very well. And they've continued to do well because they were set up a lot better this time than they were back in 2008 and 9. And that recession was caused by corporate and individual greed. This time, it was caused by something unforeseen, not a pun there, but a virus. And that's just cooped up everybody and made people feel very, very tight, no matter where you live in America, in my opinion. Yeah, no, for sure. Chris, what would you add to that? And I, I want to go through with both of you some places where you think there's good opportunity right now. One of the ones, Chris, that comes up from you is Alibaba, which, of course, has gotten uh, tied up in all of this back and forth between the, the U.S. and Chinese relationship. So on this kind of wall of worry, how high is that for you? Would you put the civil unrest on there? Well, of course, it all depends on time horizon. And this is where people get trapped. I always say, you know, as investors, we need to be dispassionate. We need to be unemotional. We need to focus on the long term. As humans and citizens, you know, we need to be compassionate and engaged. So it's sort of a a bifurcated response. You know, when you ask us how we look at the world today, as investors, we do look beyond, we look beyond uh, uh, what we're seeing now. And we recognize enormous strength in the core in China and in the U.S. And I think that over the long arc, we'll look back in 2020, it'll be one of those years where we'll look back to the terrible things that we've gone through in the last 50 years, and they're all on that chart. And yet stock prices have sort of marched inexorably up and to the right. And And why is that, do you think? And, And we're showing some of your other picks, Wells Fargo, Capital One, you know, Raytheon, Amazon. But why is that that stock prices just keep marching higher? Well, of course, the old saying is investing is the art of the specific. So I think it's dangerous to generalize. There are businesses, public businesses and private businesses that are in deep trouble now and aren't going to come through this, certainly not without financing, whether that financing comes from the government uh, or uh, is punitive uh, or whether they get a good deal. We don't know. 
We think that's a whole area of the market to avoid. High fixed costs, plummeting revenue, stretched balance sheets, there's going to be a lot of tumult there. But in terms of the specifics, what I'd say is the financial sector has been preparing for this for 10 years. It's been delevered, credit, liquidity, uh, 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 the stress test, the regulatory environment, enormously strong position to go into this. So I actually think banks, unlike being the villain in the last crisis, I think they can wear a white hat in this crisis and really help people through it. And I think we're starting to see that. And that's why the financials, which have gone down the most, are now acting better. Interesting. And Neil, I remember last time you said you liked LPL Financial because you thought there'd actually be a boom in remuneration financial advice uh, for, for people as a result of this. Today, you're also saying, look at Whirlpool, Crown Holdings, Toll Brothers, and the housing uh, sector certainly has been one of the strongest parts of the recovery here. You know, I started to look at just the real world, Kelly, as you know, I, I try and do most of the time. And, and if you look at boat sales, you look at RV sales, these, these are not inexpensive toys that are going out the showroom door. At the same time, people are spending money, want to continue to spend money where mortgage rates are. People can afford to buy a house. But at the same time, they can afford now to upgrade their appliances. That's why I like War, War, Whirlpool. Easy for me to say today. And Toll Brothers. But then there's other companies out there that people just don't even know about, Kelly, which is, uh, say, Crown Holdings. They make aluminum cans, but they make aluminum cans that actually promote your business. We've all seen it on, on what I call the IPAs or whatever the craft beer is, but they're all specially packaged. And so you're creating a brand over a can. And you're talking about a company that's going to earn 4 to $5 a share and doesn't even pay a dividend yet. So there's plenty of opportunity to continue to march higher mm. in different companies. It doesn't necessarily mean the whole market's going to go crazy to 100000 I'm not saying it is. But the difference is companies will do good over time yeah. if they're well managed. As you're both saying, investing is the art of the specific. And, Neil, if there's not a beer can with your face on it for Christmas this year, I'm going to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> I can only hope, Kelly. Neil Hennessy and Chris Davis, thank you both for joining me today. Very much appreciate thank it. You. Coming up, why Nike saying don't do it could be a lesson for other companies on communication during a crisis. We'll talk more about that. Plus, Eli Lilly starting human study of a potential breakthrough coronavirus treatment. We've got the details with the shares fractionally higher today. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's take a look at the markets right now. And as you can see from the major averages, we have gains of about a half a percent to almost one percent across the board. Now, over the weekend, as the unrest was reaching a climax, futures were lower. But by last night, the curfews in uh, Minneapolis, some of the other measures, you saw futures turn green. And that's what we still have throughout the session today. The Dow's up 108 points. And the outperformer, once again, is the Nasdaq up eight tenths of one percent. In terms of sectors, there's only one even in the red today, and that's healthcare. As you can see way down over there, it's down by just under one percent today. The outperformers, the financials, which uh, Chris Davis was just talking so much about, energy and real estate, all up one and a half to, in real estate's case, 2.3% today. Now, here are some of the movers uh, we should mention at this hour. Zoom is hitting an all-time high, and it's going to report earnings tomorrow. So Zoom shares, look at this, are up nearly 14%. The classic quintessential stay-at-home stock this year. Uh, the shares are now trading over $200, again, a nearly 14% gain. The company announcing a new encryption plan to deal with some security issues. 
and you can see the excitement there. Beyond Meat is also in the green. They just inked a deal with Yum China. Big distribution opportunity for the faux meat brand. It's up nearly 6% today. And finally, Pfizer. This one is going the other way. It's on pace for its biggest percentage drop in 11 years. After halting study of a potential cancer treatment, Pfizer shares are down nearly 7% today. And let's get over to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Sue? Thank you very much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. In Atlanta, dozens of protesters are back in front of City Hall demanding justice for George Floyd. Other peaceful protests have resumed in Minneapolis, where a funeral memorial for Floyd has now been scheduled for Thursday. Former Vice President Joe Biden holding a roundtable with the mayors of cities including Atlanta, Chicago and Los Angeles. Earlier today, he spoke to community leaders at a predominantly African-American church in his hometown of Wilmington, Delaware. And a bit of good news here. For the first time since March, Spain has reported a day without deaths from the coronavirus. Spain's one-day peak was 950 deaths in early April. The country's official death toll now stands at more than 27,000. The health minister said that is very good news. No deaths this time around. So that's good news to pass along to you, Kelly. Surprising. Muy bien. Uh, Sue, thanks very much. Mm -hmm. We appreciate it. Still ahead, it appears that it's becoming more finger-pointing and less uniting these days amidst all of the turmoil and protests. What kind of leadership is needed to get the country moving forward? We'll dig into that. Plus, history was made this weekend when NASA and SpaceX launched two astronauts to space from American soil for the first time in almost a decade and for the first time ever in a commercial spacecraft. Tesla shares are rallying today as Elon Musk's reputation grows. We'll have more in just a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange. Business leaders across many industries are joining CNBC to discuss the protests and to call for fundamental change in this country. Listen. When there's unrest, people put out statements. They put out platitudes. They say this is terrible. We decry racism. Uh, We believe that we ought to build a just society. I think business has to go beyond what is required here. Before the pandemic, there was something like 12 million unfilled jobs in this country. And there are five million inner city and other African-American kids who want access to the economy. They want to be participants. They want to be citizens. They want to be consumers. What they lack is the education. They lack the training. And there are opportunities for programs like this. I love the saying, math has no opinion. None. Just count. And when you count and you see in at the highest levels of corporate America, all the way down the chain, the differences in the numbers and how people of color, black and brown Americans, underrepresented minorities do not show up in the numbers that we exist in this country. That is not acceptable. How many Steve Jobs are there sitting in, uh, in inner cities in America who could add to, add to GDP? I'm not asking for charity. I'm not asking for a handout. I'm not asking for anything. I'm saying that we need a necessary investment in um, the, re- the revitalization and the reset of a new America, the redawning of new GDP. So could the reset of a new America, so to speak, begin in Washington? For more on that, I'm joined by Joe Watkins, Republican strategist and former White House aide to President George H.W. Bush. He's also a pastor and the author of the new PC, a Practical Consideration. Joe, it's good to have you. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Great to be with you. 
I'll begin with the way we pose the question, because we haven't really dug into the politics of this yet. But obviously, in terms of pragmatically for the markets, they are wondering what all this unrest means for President Trump's reelection. What would you say about that? Well, it may have an impact. I mean, there are so many other challenges right now that the country faces, not least of which, of course, would be the rate of uh, unemployment uh, and, and uh, caused by the pandemic. Uh, so there'll be other issues that will impact uh, uh, voters at the polls as they prepare to consider who they want to vote for in November. Um, but uh, with regards to, to this issue, I mean, I, I suppose that it can be said that if we do nothing, it will cost us more money than, 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 to, uh, than if we don't. I mean, we, we need to respond. Something needs to be done about uh, these uh, 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 unfortunate police uh, actions that have resulted in the death uh, of, uh, of, of, of black people around the country. And uh, while some people might say, well, it's just a shame and, and, and certainly it's, it's good to protest uh, and, and we have the right to, to have our voices heard, that is all true. And, and people ought to be heard. And this is the time to talk about uh, how we come together and, and how we make change positively as a country. Uh, but, the, but at the end of the day, real leadership, I think, from the standpoint of the elected officials like those in Congress, is seen by whether or not they they put forward any kind of a legislative remedy, and and they can they can do that. I haven't heard much from Congress about that about how we fix this problem, how we uh, how we uh, fix this challenge. And, and I think that it, Cato Institute did a, a wonderful piece uh, just a couple of years ago saying that real police reform requires national policing standards. And I think they're right. That if you had national policing standards, if you at least had minimum standards with regards to the use of excessive force, you could avoid these kinds of unfortunate incidents where people lose their lives because of uh, the lack of any kind of a, of, a, of a policing standard. So maybe I guess to kind of phrase it back to how this plays out, because this does coincide with an election cycle. Is that an issue that, you know, prospective President Biden could take, you think, and, and have a lot of success with? Is that an issue that you know, someone in Congress who's looking to flip control or is in a tight race could could become a champion of a, of a cause like that. Do you think this becomes one of these issues that we hear and, and propels people to the polls months from now? Well, this is one of the times when, uh, Kelly, uh, doing the right thing could also be doing the, expe the politically expedient thing, uh, because clearly uh, this is something that needs to be addressed right now. It's it's not enough for us to be angry. It's, it's much more important that we address it and fix the problem. And uh, for, for any member of Congress, for any candidate uh, running for political office uh, on any level, but certainly uh, those running on the national level, uh, this is a wise thing to discuss and, and, to, and to propose and to move forward. Uh, and it's not, it's not outside of the bounds of what Congress can do. They can hold hearings. These committees can hold hearings on on legislative reform, on, on, on national standards for policing uh, that would involve the community and, and likewise um, uh, members of, uh, of the police force to figure out the, the, the ways that we can avoid these kinds of sad confrontations with even sadder results. Joe, finally, I'm curious how your thinking has evolved on this issue over the years um, in, in, from a historical sense, meaning I'm curious, what were the kinds of discussions you would have had back in the H.W. Bush White House versus what's playing out today now 20, almost 30 years later. Um, is it much worse than you would have uh, hoped? Is it about what you would have thought? Um, is it better in some ways? I, I'm, I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about what is going through your mind as you see these protests. Well, uh, our challenges with race uh, didn't just happen yesterday. They've been around for a long time. And, 
And so I'm not surprised that, uh, that we're still challenged by this. Many people had supposed that uh, with the election of President Obama that we'd be in a post-racial society, uh, and that hasn't happened. Uh, we, we know that our country still has tremendous challenges when it comes to race, and, and we haven't yet gotten to the point where we're able to see human beings as human beings uh, without looking at their, the color of their skin or their ethnicity or their gender. Uh, so we have challenges going forward. This is a great conversation to have, and in my book I talk about that, the need to discuss this and to to have a national conversation and move us forward. It's not going to necessarily be solved overnight, but uh, I, I know certainly I've been talking about it for a long time and saying that it really, at the end of the day, has to do with uh, loving your neighbor like you love yourself. Uh, and, and if you really care about your neighbor the way you care about yourself, then you take time to understand your neighbor uh, despite how your neighbor looks or where your neighbor may come from. Uh, and, and, and the outcome would be certainly a lot different if more of us did that. But this is, I'm not surprised, uh, it's going to take time, but we need to have the conversation, absolutely, and we need to have it now. So I guess my final question to you is, are you more or less hopeful about the future of race relations in this country now? Um, maybe more so because this is bringing the issue to uh, such a head, or, or less so because of just the deep tensions this is revealing? I, I'm, I'm more hopeful. I'm more hopeful. I'm hopeful because of the fact that so many people, black and white, were outraged by what happened, including police. There were other police, uh, uh, members of the police forces in other cities that were outraged as well by what happened to George Floyd. And, and they, they showed that. They demonstrated that by joining in some instances with the protesters. Uh, that, that shows that we're moving forward that in this country. The fact that so many Americans, black and white, were, were outraged and moved to write about it and, and moved to, to make their voices heard about it shows that we're making progress as a country. Uh, we haven't gotten there yet, but we're headed in the right direction, and it, we're, we're now at least at a point where we can be begin to listen to each other. I think that ultimately is a good thing. Joe Watkins, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. And we've got a news alert on Uberts related to all of this. Deirdre Bosa has the details. Deirdre. Hey, Kelly, ride-sharing and food delivery companies are seeing their operations disrupted amid the countrywide protests. Uber says it has suspended operations in Minneapolis, San Francisco, Oakland, and downtown Los Angeles to comply with city curfews. In a statement, the company says that some cities have requested we suspend operations completely, while others want to ensure that Uber is available for essential services. Lyft says that it's also following local guidance, and DoorDash says they're abiding by local curfews and pausing operations as, as updates become available. We'll continue to track these companies and bring you more updates as we get them. But Kelly, just a reminder too, that we heard from Amazon yesterday, said they're monitoring the situation closely. And in a handful of cities, they've adjusted routes or scaled back operations. Back to you. Deirdre, thanks very much. Deirdre Boso with the details there. Coming up as corporations from Target to Peloton to Beyond Meat all comment on the protests raging across America. Marketing veteran Mike Jackson will join us to talk about how brands can better navigate this unrest. But First, Eli Lilly is launching a clinical trial for a new COVID-19 treatment, while the latest trial of Gilead's remdesivir offered a mixed picture. You can see Gilead shares down nearly 3%. We will dig into those details next, right here on The Exchange. Welcome back. Eli Lilly is beginning the world's first trial of a drug derived from the blood of COVID-19 survivors. Now, their shares are fractionally higher today, while Gilead is selling off after reporting results from its antiviral drug remdesivir. Let's get to all of it with Meg Terrell now. Uh, Meg, it's great to see you. And, and let's start with this news from Eli Lilly. 
Yeah, it's exciting news, Kelly. So this would be the first potential medicine actually designed specifically to fight COVID-19. And as you said, it is derived from the blood of one of the first people to recover from COVID-19 in the United States. It's an antibody designed to potentially both treat the infection and to prevent it if it's successful. So in this phase one study, Lily is going to enroll 32 people and they've already started dosing the first of them. Uh, they're essentially uh, looking at an assessment of safety and tolerability here in this study with results expected by the end of June. If all goes well, they'll move into larger studies and they're simultaneously ramping up manufacturing to have doses ready if it works. Uh, now, this is an acceleration of the timeline that we'd heard from Lilly and its partners, Abcelera and the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. It puts them ahead of Regeneron, which is also slated to begin human clinical trials this month. We also know that a smaller company, Veer, partnered with GSK, also plans to be in human trials this summer. Other companies like Amgen and more are also working on this approach, Kelly. So it's pretty exciting to potentially have these new medicines tailor-made for COVID-19. Right. And these are treatments as opposed to the vaccine race, which we've been talking about separately from that. Uh, but sticking with treatments, we have Gilead with this from Desivere Drug. There's a lot of excitement about early on. Um, we had said, look, this was what we know about it so far was focused on really sick patients. Now we have the results, I believe, from a study where people were more moderately sick. And what did we find from that? Exactly. So that's the differentiation. What's new in these data today? The data we'd seen so far were in severe patients with COVID-19 or in the NIH trial, which was a mixture of patients. So this was the moderate patients. They were still hospitalized with pneumonia, but they did not require oxygen supplementation. And what it found is that a five-day course of remdesivir um, gave them 65% uh, more likelihood of having clinical improvement after 11 days versus the standard of care. Now, they also tested the 10-day course of remdesivir, and that, while it trended toward positivity, was not statistically significant. So kind of mixed results that just line up with what we've seen so far about this drug. It appears to have an effect, but that effect appears to be pretty modest, Kelly. All right, Meg, thanks very much for recapping it for us. We appreciate it. Meg Terrell with the latest there. Coming up, SpaceX's launch over the weekend was successful. It got two astronauts to the International Space Station, and it was the first time America launched a manned craft in nearly a decade. What the historic launch means for American space and commercial space travel, we'll have that next. Liftoff of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon. Go NASA, go SpaceX, Godspeed, Bob and Doug. A historic weekend for NASA and for SpaceX, delivering astronauts Doug Hurley and Bob Behnken safely to the International Space Station in the first ever human flight by a commercial spacecraft. Let's get to Morgan Brennan for more on what this means. Morgan, for American spaceflight, um, also for SpaceX and Tesla shares, which are rallying today. They sure are rallying. Uh, you know, this is really a picture-perfect launch, Kelly, Saturday of SpaceX's Crew Dragon, which is now named Endeavour from Kennedy Space Center. March the first time astronauts traveled to orbit from U.S. soil in nearly a decade. First time on a commercial spacecraft as well. So Elon Musk's company even relanding the Falcon 9 rocket's booster on a drone ship just a short while after liftoff. 
as NASA astronauts Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley hurtled to orbit a 19-hour flight that culminated in Dragon docking autonomously with the International Space Station 250 miles above Earth, orbiting at about 17,500 miles per hour. They joined fellow American Chris Cassidy and two Russian cosmonauts on board, and they're going to remain on the ISS for the next one to four months before returning to Earth in an ocean landing. Meantime, Big win for SpaceX, with Musk now, according at least to Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas, quote, clearly the most important person to the U.S. space program. And a big win for commercial space overall, as this ushers in a new era of human spaceflight, one that's really comprised of public-private partnerships and what NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstein described to us last week as the commercialization of low-Earth orbit. Now, SpaceX is privately held, but perhaps not surprising, Surprising, we are seeing publicly traded space names like Virgin Galactic, Maxar, Aerojet, Rocketdyne, and of course the Procure Space ETF UFO higher in sympathy today, as well as Musk's other company, Tesla, uh, for which I think it just all continues to bolster the Elon Musk brand overall. Callie? Absolutely. And Morgan, I see here that, you know, it's, it's bizarre. I see CNBC exclusive, but then I see the astronauts, but, you know, Bacon and Duggar. Are you guys, are, are you ta- are we talking to the astronauts? That's pretty cool. Oh, we're talking to the astronauts tomorrow. Right after the opening bell, a few minutes after 9.30 a.m. Eastern, Bob Bankin and Doug Curley are going to join us exclusively on Squawk on the Street, their first one-on-one broadcast interview uh, since making this historic journey over the weekend. That is fantastic. That is awesome. I'm very much looking forward to it. Morgan, thanks so much. Morgan Brennan with that thrilling news from over the weekend. Still ahead, Nike's recently released Just Don't Do It video condemning racism managed to bring it and its rival Adidas together. Up next, we're going to look at what other major brands could do in the face of ongoing social unrest. The Exchange is back in two. Welcome back. Corporate America is racing to respond to protests that erupted across the country this weekend. A new video by Nike begins with, for once, don't do it, asking viewers not to pretend there's not a problem in America. And in a surprising move, Nike's biggest competitor, Adidas, retweeted the video, adding that together is how we move forward. Together is how we make change. For more on what brands can do to help unite the country, I'm joined by Mike Jackson, founder of the 2050 Marketing and former VP of Marketing and Advertising for General Motors. Mike, it's good to have you. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. So I I struggle with trying to believe there's something really genuine going on here other than, you know, when people love that Adidas and Nike are, are, you know, tweeting this in conjunction. Well, I I mean, is it the symbolism that's most important? It's not as if Nike stores aren't being looted. You know what I mean? Like they seem to get the tone right every time. And yet is that it almost feels a little bit hollow to me somehow as if the tone is all that matters. Yeah, you know, Nike is just consistently being very authentic in, in their messaging. So it was not a surprise when I saw that video. Uh, and even the tone of the video, it's, it's consistent with the way they communicate, not just through messaging, uh, but it's, it's really what their brand represents. Um, I, I kind of harken back to, you know, earlier in the month of uh, March and April, uh, when the COVID crisis really started to hit. A lot of brands migrated their messaging to be more about America, you know, encouraging people to stay home in Uber's case. And I would like to see brands be a part of this conversation, be a part of advancing the conversation. 
I guess one more point on Nike, and then I'll move on. But if they're if they're being so authentic to themselves, like you've said, why weren't their stores spared? Why didn't people say, you know what, not Nike, they're with us? Well, as you know, Kelly, you know you've got a couple things going on uh, in the streets across America. You've got a lot of peaceful protesters, and you've got people taking advantage of the situation to do things that, um, you know, looting stores, et cetera. So I, I don't think it's related to, you know, confidence consumers would have in Nike or liking or disliking Nike in that regard. I just think you've got people misbehaving. Hmm, hmm. And I, I know it's it's difficult to kind of disentangle everything that's going on uh, for sure. Um, but you've also given examples of some brands that you think, you know, well, you say Nike is one that it kind of always hits the right message in, in these kinds of situations. There are a number that you think either are more tone deaf or kind of just shouldn't go there. So I don't you know, however willing you are to name names, maybe you can give some examples of what not to do. Well, you know, there are a lot of brands that I think have a responsibility to uh, be part of the conversation. I mean, if you look at the top five most valued global brands, you come up with names like Amazon and Apple and Google and and, and Microsoft. Um, I do think that those brands should be more proactive in having messaging that would emanate on broadcast television, on shows like this but ultimately through all their social channels. So I think it's it's natural for them. I think they're well positioned. Uh, I've heard from some of their CEOs uh, in social media over the weekend, you know, make, make, make really heartfelt posts. And I think the employees at those companies are going to demand uh, that the leadership take a stand. Uh, I'm sure you're aware there was this virtual walkout going on this morning with Facebook employees not really objecting in a way uh, Mark Zuckerberg's handling the situation with a lot of the comments online uh, by our president. So I, I do think that, you know, these companies have a responsibility to their employees. They have a res- responsibility to shareholders. And then they have a responsibility to the people that, that, that buy their products. So there's some brands that naturally should go there. And there's some brands that frankly shouldn't go there. You know, as, as Pepsi learned a couple years ago, um, they are not part of the conversation, and they probably should stay on the sidelines. And I think brands like General Motors, I hate to name my, my old company, but I'll be rather critical of the fact that, you know, when that Flint water crisis was going on, they stood on the sidelines. When the virus was ravaging Detroit, they stood on the sidelines. And so literally for them to come out and make a comment would be not just welcome, but it would probably be inappropriate. There's also this backlash to some of the companies who have put out statements but not uh, put money with it. What would your advice be to brands in general here? Well, I've always advocated that, you know, I think the leadership of these brands, obviously, you need more diversity because if you've got diversity at the top, uh, decision making becomes very swift, becomes very heartfelt. So I I do think that uh, the leadership of these companies need to be more connected with the community. I mean, it could be simple as the top 20 officers in, in these respective companies, you know, join their, their community, uh, join boards of nonprofit, uh, join the police athletic league so that they can understand what's going on inside these police departments, but really intertwine themselves with the, with the community versus showing up in downtown Minneapolis if you're 3M and then going back to the suburbs. They need to be more involved day to day with the community and engage the stakeholders that, 
frankly, pay the bills. Mike, we have very little time left, but what if more companies flee the cities between this and coronavirus and people moving to suburbs, everything else going on? Ten seconds, if you can. Yeah, that would be tragic because, again, the cities are the lifeblood of America, and hopefully uh, they will continue to be. Yeah, no, I've I, I got to fit a lot of philosophical thought in a few, <laughs> few moments' time. Uh, Mike, thanks so much. Really appreciate your thoughts about what people should do here. Okay, thank you. Mike Jackson joining us. Uh, talk about how you come out of the stronger as a brand. Well, that does it for The Exchange today. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.